It's so good to be able to come together to symbol like this, isn't it? In a world that so often offers differing perspectives and viewpoints that often are so troubling and choices that often are so misdirected. And yet, you and I have that blessed book about which we've just sung, Give Me the Bible, Holy Message Shining. You're probably holding on your lap that book we call the Bible, and I would invite you to begin a brief series of lessons with me tonight as we look at some of the features of the history of the Bible, perhaps reinvigorating within ourselves an appreciation for just how splendid and just how remarkable that book truly is. As we do that, though, there will no doubt be many things in the series that we have at least touched upon from time to time. But as we begin these opening comments, I would encourage you to think very interestingly about this book we call the Bible. What makes it so special? What is it about it that is so distinct, so different, so unlike the other millions of books that are available to us? Well, one of the things, of course, will relate to its history. And so over the course of this journey, this particular series, we will touch upon a number of aspects and features. You might notice about the bottom of it. I hope we would each agree that the Bible is so incredibly popular worldwide. We're even going to look at some numbers during the course of the lesson tonight. You might even be startled by how that popularity actually is. But let's get started in the following way. When you and I think about this book we call the Bible, we're each well aware of the fact that there are two main major divisions. There is the Old Testament comprising some 39 books. Those books begin at Genesis and end at Malachi. As you give thought to those books, you might quickly appreciate around 1,500 years elapsed from the time the first one was written until the time the last one was written. As you give thought to that, isn't it remarkable? Among other things that you and I realize today, when a person sits down to write a book, he or she obviously writes it within his or her lifetime. And yet, that Old Testament alone spanned over a millennium and a half. No wonder you and I can appreciate the superintending influence of one far greater than any man who wrote it. The superintending influence of one from heaven guiding those covering all those centuries. Not only that, you might appreciate the language in which it was written. In the most part, Hebrew. There are a few very, very small sections written in Aramaic. Those occur a little bit later in the book of Daniel primarily. But isn't it true as you think about that Hebrew language... It was a language suitable, in fact, ideally so, for the preservation and presentation of those Old Testament Scriptures. It is true, in addition to that, there are five main divisions into which those 39 Old Testament books might be divided. There are the five books of law written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses is recognized quite often as the great lawgiver, and he penned those first five books. In fact, the closing chapter of the fifth of those books details his death. At that point, we take up 12 books of Old Testament history, commencing at Joshua and proceeding thereon. We notice a detailed presentation of the life and times of the children of Israel, the presentation of that group of people 
and God's especial work among them. Following that one, we arrive then at five books of poetry. You and I have often turned to books like Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. And we notice the literature of those books is very different than either the five books of law or the twelve books of history. But yet it's inspired. And it details the message of God written in that form. We next come to the five books that we typically call the major prophets, beginning with Isaiah and ending with Daniel. Now, they're major because they're a little longer. It's not that they're more important. But these major prophets are those that you and I recognize as Isaiah and Jeremiah. And we appreciate that he also wrote Lamentations, and then there's Ezekiel and Daniel. One by one, as we appreciate them, they fit into the history that has already been studied. And then finally, there are 12 books called the Minor Prophets, beginning at Hosea and ending at Malachi. And they set before us again the Word of God as presented through those Old Testament figures we call the prophets. But with that, we turn our attention to the New Testament, much shorter. In fact, a little bit less than a fourth as long as the Old Testament. It comprises only 27 books, beginning at Matthew and ending at Revelation. Those 27 books, however, quickly might be stated like this. Whereas there was around 32 writers of the Old Testament books, there are only 8 writers of the New Testament books. As you give thought to those 27 books, please appreciate that they were written during a span a bit less than 100 years. As such, again, if you add together the Old Testament as well as the New, it's easy to appreciate then, isn't it, that the sum total of the Word of God was written over about a 1,600-year period. And as such, you and I can readily understand what, what a great book indeed that it is. One last thought about that New Testament. It was written in Greek. It was written in a language that itself was ideally suited to the permanent preservation of that word. Have you ever given thought of the fact that when God chose the Greek language as the one ideally suited for the presentation of His Word for the New Testament era, you and I now live 20 centuries this side of, by and large, when it was written, and yet we still have access to the perfection of that Word. Over the course of these 20 centuries, many languages in the human family have come and gone. Some have become extinct, but it isn't so with regard to your access and mine of the Bible. It is with that in mind, might we notice, there was a period of about 400 years between the ending of the Old Testament and the, right, and the beginning of the New. We may have more to say about that in a subsequent series of lessons, admittedly. But for now, let's come near the bottom of that slide. 66 books, majestic, harmonious, unified, and absolutely perfect. The God of heaven selected His will to be written in those 66 books. Ponder for just a moment again one of the majestic thoughts concerning it. I'm sure you have been to a library, as have I, and sometimes with regard to a particular subject, often a rather small one, and yet the author has written a gigantic book. 
Have you ever given thought of the fact that God summarized the history of the whole universe and furthermore gave the law that's absolute and shall last until the end of time and did it in a book no bigger than that? It's truly astounding, isn't it? Isn't it so then in regard to that book, some of those additional observations I thought might be intriguing. I made the statement near the beginning of the lesson how popular in many ways the Bible is. Consider just some of these numbers. To say the Bible is popular is a rather vast understatement. It is by far the most popular book in the world. Look at some of these numbers. There are 168,000 of them sold every day. Not only that, that translates to roughly 20 million copies of the Bible every year. May I suggest to you, no book on the New York Times bestseller list or otherwise. In fact, you can take the top several and add them together and they won't have numbers close to that. What's more, the Gideons International Group, and we're all familiar with them, they put the Bibles in every hotel room, for example, among other places. That group alone disseminates about 60 million copies a year. Look at the next one. As you give thought to the number of Bibles printed every year, it's in excess of a hundred million copies. The last one I thought you'd be intrigued with, as was I. When you think about the number of languages into which the Bible has been translated, it's been translated literally into hundreds of languages around the world. Many of us, of course, have access to cell phones and we use them often. Would you be impressed? Each and every second, there are over 66,000 Bible apps being accessed. Every second. There's no argument then to the fact that this book is incredibly special. Making note of all that simply leads us to the next slide. As you think about this Word of God, this Bible... I thought it would be fitting to put into place, though, not everyone has loved it, and not everyone loves it today. During the course of history, there have been individuals who, quite frankly, have had such a strong disdain for it that it was actually their goal and desire to destroy it. I selected three. Notice first Antiochus. You and I know him from a bit of our study back at the book of Daniel a bit of, about a year ago. We highlighted, didn't we, the fact that in that very book was detailed a monster that was coming. Now, I use the word monster because in many ways he was a rascal. He had a great disdain for the things of God. And you remember that it was his desire, in fact, to crush this thing known as Judaism. Now, he lived before Jesus did, 175 B.C. You may appreciate the fact that he really didn't like the Scriptures much. It was too restrictive... Notice that he failed in his attempt. I simply made listing of it, but you and I know that Antiochus died. And the Word of God rose again from the embers into which he thought he placed it. And those same Jewish people, notice the Christ child did come through them. And they again did rise to prominence. And our New Testament scriptures are a testimony to the fact that Antiochus did not succeed. In fact, you and I still today have access to those powerful 39 Old Testament books as well. Look at the second example. I mentioned Diocletian. 
near the beginning of the 4th century A.D. Here was one who, again, the Roman Empire is such that there had been a rather strong opposition to Christianity. Many of the Roman Caesars, the Roman rulers, had such a hatred toward it that they wished to have removed it and abandoned it and annihilated it. Diocletian, you see, strongly wished to destroy Christianity and all of this business surrounding Jesus, known as the Christ. May I suggest to you, maybe you hadn't heard much about Diocletian, but you've still heard a lot about the Bible. Diocletian didn't succeed, you see. And isn't it impressive that less than 25 years from the time that he had such a strong desire to crush and to remove the Bible... The Roman Empire, the, Ro the emperor then, Constantine, he converted to Christianity. And the Roman Empire came to not persecute it so strongly, but to uphold it. Isn't that amazing? Within a quarter century, and all the things concerning Diocletian were a part of the dustbin of history, but the Word of God lives on. What about example three? We've mentioned Voltaire more than once. As you come to the French Revolution, isn't it a fascinating thing that, of course, here in our land, there was a notable revolution. The colonies had reached the point when they wanted to be separate from Great Britain. It was their perspective. Britain was no longer looking after the well-being and the welfare of the folks in this land. And, of course, the American Revolution was the, was the product. Now, you and I know the American Revolution was prompted by and large by those who had a wish to do what was right. The Continental Congress began every day with a session of prayer. They besought the aid of God to help set this nation on a course that was holy and right. And of course, it enjoyed that success for a long, long time. But perhaps much less known to you and me is that there were other countries around the world also suffering through a revolution at about the same time that this land did. France, perhaps most notably. But in France, the motivation for the revolution was so different, they wished to cast off the shackles that were binding them so that they could enjoy and pursue any and everything they wanted, regardless how wrong, how lewd, how licentious, how lascivious it might be. They didn't want any freedoms, or rather any, anything that was restricting them. In their mind, they wanted the most absolute pursuit of freedom. One of the gentlemen, one of the philosophers who was such a prompting character concerning that was Voltaire. You can read in his writings how that he himself declared, within a hundred years there will be no more Bibles. He hated the Word of God. It was much too restrictive and much too demanding in terms of what it wouldn't let you do. Voltaire's long dead, and the Bible lives on. In fact, one thing I believe is so terribly intriguing. Less than 25 years after Voltaire died, the house in which he had lived was such that a printing press was installed there, and it was used to print Bibles. The very house in which Voltaire, who hated the Bible so much, and yet... That very same residence, that domicile, was used as a place to print Bibles. Don't you love the Word of God? Doesn't it excite you to think about the, preser the preservation of it? That though there have been those who've hated it, and though they've expended great energy in attempting to destroy it, they have all failed. 
It reminds me a bit of 1 Peter 1.25, doesn't it? You, the Word of God, shall stand forever. Is it, isn't it true as you come near the bottom of that slide? It's entirely fair to ask, what does the Bible claim about itself? Isn't it so that in the courts of our land, if an individual is being tried for something, that person is giving the opportunity to express his own viewpoint. He is given an opportunity to, to defend himself. It seems only fair that you and I allow the Bible to claim for itself what it is. Let's not read into it what's not there. What does this book claim about itself? Let's take a journey over the next couple of minutes and give some thought to what the Bible has to say for itself. As we close that slide, one of the things I hope that will rest on your mind and mine is this. In light of what we've said so far, wouldn't it be fair to comment as follows? If this book claims in a very forthright and direct way to be the Word of God, then it seems as if we have but really one of two options. Either it is what it claims to be, and it really is then from heaven. No human really ever determined it, but rather God dictated what was to be written. Either that's so, or those people who wrote it were liars. Because again, it claims to be the Word of God, but if it isn't, then those people lied, and we have no reason to trust this book. Or perhaps you could argue that, again... Not only perhaps were they liars, but maybe they were deceived. Maybe they really thought it was the Word of God, but wasn't. Let's sort all of that out as we let the Bible speak for itself. Turning that slide, let's begin like this. First of all, the claims are so terribly strong, aren't they? Both in the Old and in the New Testament. Let's begin in the Old Testament for the next few moments. In 2 Samuel 23, verse number 2, here again, we are far along really in the Old Testament Scriptures, and yet in the days of David, that sweet singer of Israel, isn't it true that he made this statement, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His Word was in my tongue. May I ask then, who provided the words that David penned? David said the Spirit did it. He didn't claim it for himself. He didn't claim it for any man. He said, the Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and it was His word that was in my tongue. Furthermore, wouldn't you notice in that, that David readily knew then that what he was writing was Scripture. He didn't just happen to write something one day, and then about ten years later figure out, well, that must have been Scripture. He apparently knew exactly as that Spirit was guiding him to write what he did. Look at Jer Jeremiah chapter 1. In the opening chapter of that powerful major prophet, we read these words, Whatsoever I command thee, that thou shalt speak. Now two verses later in verse number 9, the God of heaven had rather powerfully said, Jeremiah, I've put my words in thy mouth. Question. Those words then that Jeremiah spoke and those words that he uttered, where did they come from? The God of heaven said, I've put them in your mouth. Notice, it was not Jeremiah's thoughts that emanated in those words. It was the actual fact that God gave him those words. As you give thought to this matter in Jeremiah, 
Look at the next one in Ezekiel 3, verses 2 and following. Near the beginning of that prophet, we find Ezekiel rather powerfully being told by the God of heaven. He had been given a message. He was known as the Son of Man. And God said, Son of Man, go and speak with my words unto the house of Israel. Whose words were they? Ezekiel was told they were God's words. As you and I then open a book, this book known as the Bible, no matter which one of those 66 books we look into, we're reading the Word from heaven, the Word of God. No man here wrote it. Nobody in Washington, D.C., nobody in London, England, nobody even in Jerusalem, nobody, you see, in relation to any place of authority on earth. As you look at the next one with me, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, this is a New Testament passage that in fact relates to the Old Testament. Speaking of those scriptures, Paul writing to Timothy said, Thou hast known from a babe the holy scriptures. He called them holy. That word scripture as appears there is from the Greek word graphe, and it means the writings. Please notice the article the. It's not that they were just some arbitrary ancient writings. They were the writings. As you and I shall study a bit later in this series, there then came to be a respected set of writings that were elevated above all the other writings that may be of men. They were recognized as the writings. In addition to that one, you and I might appreciate that powerful scene of Romans 15.4. When Paul again addressed the church in Rome, he commented along these lines. He spoke about that word, that word that they had known of old, those, those precious and powerful scriptures. He also went ahead to say that they, of course, provide comfort and they provide admonition, they provide great sources of encouragement. Now, those scriptures noted on occasion like that one, again, he said that they are they which provide the issues and the means from God. The next one, Acts 7.38. Aren't you amazed at what Stephen had to say? As he stood and preached with such prestige and power, he called before them the scriptures. I would invite you and I to think about how special a word the word scriptures is. You know, when you refer to a writing of some particular kind, maybe you refer to a document, a magazine, an article, the papers. But there's something very special about the word scriptures. S-C-R-I-P-T-U-R-E-S, the scriptures. Though we shall look at that in more detail as we arrive at the next lesson. It's a bit interesting to appreciate that on a few occasions the Word of God then makes a beautiful reference to that which is Scripture. May I call to your attention Romans 3 verse 2, the last one I mentioned in relation to the Old Testament. Here the oracles of God, and Paul quickly affirmed that those Jews had been given opportunity, they'd been given possession of those things. Notice again, oracles from God. No wonder the Bible's so special. But why don't we look at the New Testament a minute. As you give thought to the sampling of these verses, I suspect the very first one to which all of us would so readily turn is 2 Timothy 3. 
Now, a moment ago, we noticed verse 15. What about now verse 16? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. All Scripture is given of God. Now ponder with me the thoroughness of the Greek word that's used there, theonoustos. All Scripture is theonoustos, meaning it is literally breathed of God. In this kind of description, one can imagine God is described as one who sets forth by way of breathing, and those Scriptures are of His breath. That's a fascinating description, isn't it? No wonder the Bible's so unique and special, for there's no other book on earth described like that. Now, there may be a lot of other fine social books or fine books that help to make a particular society perhaps a bit careful than it otherwise would have been. But those books are not God-breathed. That'll be one of the other issues we shall study in due course. How do we know that there are no other books besides these 66 that are God-breathed? Is there a 67th one somewhere that we've lost? Is there some other book that perhaps we should fear that hasn't been discovered? Please put your mind at ease. There is no such fear that you and I ought to ever have. You may notice as you look at the next one in 1 Timothy 5.18, as Paul wrote those words about the behavior of the church, he called attention to a particular set of appreciations relative to those writings. Perhaps the next one, 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and following. I would invite you to notice with care about this one. There are some who have made the allegation that that statement in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Well, some are quick to say, well, that refers to the Old Testament. You don't have any reference to the fact that there's any New Testament-inspired writings. Would you please note with me 2 Peter 3, and what does this say? In the closing chapter of that book, the wording is so very intense. Peter on this occasion made this observation. As he spoke about these very special writings, notice the wording that he uses. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which... They that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other Scriptures unto their own destruction. Question, what are the writings to which Peter is referring? It's the writings of Paul. He tells us that in the previous verse. And yet, Peter called them Scripture. Those books that Paul wrote, you see, are also Scripture. Books like Romans and First and Second Corinthians, Galatians and Ephesians and the others we do have reference to the Scriptures of the New Testament. No wonder in light of those, in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, Paul, as he addressed the church in Corinth, highlighted again the particular features of some very highly respected writings. With regard to those matters now, both Old and New Testament, Isn't it fair to be so impressed and in a breathtaking way with the Word of God? Our journey continues though. This Word that you and I have been studying so far tonight, these Old and New Testament books, 
They're the Word of God, inspired of God. They are the will of heaven. And that means they simply don't rest on the foundation of men. They don't rest on the perspective of scholarly men only. They don't rest on the purview of what men thought was best. They are literally God's way and His will. For that reason, look with me at the bottom of this slide. In 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, we have a passage that will say much about the characteristic of inspiration. Let's notice it together. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. As Peter came to describe the way in which the Scriptures came to exist, he said, you realize, correct, that those Scriptures were not written by the will of men, but rather holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then was the one who guided them, moved them, directed them to write what they did. Haven't you often wondered as David wrote certain of the Psalms, there's 150 of them, why isn't there 151? Why isn't there another Psalm that describes some other attribute of life? The answer is this, the Holy Spirit guided them to write exactly what and no more that the Spirit wanted them to write. Everything is needed. There's nothing can be left out. In addition to that, please appreciate this with me. The process of inspiration itself appears to be described in some interesting passages. In Zechariah 7, verse number 12, as we dip back into the latter part of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 12, we have this interesting presentation. Listen to how some features concerning the way God gave the Word are presented. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts hath sent in His Spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. Did you notice the transition? The prophets, as they had spoken, the statements that had been given to them through the writings, God, in fact, was the overseeing power behind all of it. Or as another example, what about the opening verse of the Revelation? The last book in all of the Bible. Listen to how Jesus is identified in this circumstance. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass, and He sent and signified it by His angel unto His servant John. Isn't that fascinating? God originated it, gave it to the Son, who in turn delivered it to an angel, who in turn gave it to John. And then John was told, what you see, write it in a book, Revelation 1.11. And therefore, by that process of presentation, as you and I read the Word of God, it's what God wished us to have. It's what He commanded that we might have. As you close that slide with me, this process of inspiration takes us to some additional claims that the Bible makes for itself. For a moment, might we revisit Hebrews 4 verse 12. I place that one at the top so that we might appreciate 
it is a guiding thought for the remainder of this slide. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That verse begins by saying the Word of God is quick. That means it's living. The Word of God is not a dead book. Now that doesn't mean that there are new things being added to it. But rather what that means is that the Bible has information within it to address every culture, every problem, every circumstance until the end of time. It's always living in that regard. Not only that, the Word of God is quick and powerful. It's authoritative. It has within it the information again whereby the issues that otherwise could be so difficult can be remedied. Beyond all of that, it claims absolute authority. The lesson text for the evening was taken from John 10, 35. It's in this context I would invite you to consider again that passage. I'll only ask you to notice the closing part of the verse. Jesus speaking said the Scripture cannot be broken. Perhaps in your Bible, if you ever made a note about that passage, it is thunderously powerful. Please notice again Jesus from the lips of the Son of God Himself. He declared the Scripture cannot be broken. It's not that men are able to in fact take something from it. He said it literally is impossible to break it. The Greek word that's there means the Scripture cannot be set aside, it cannot be abrogated, it cannot be annulled. Isn't it amazing? The laws of men can sometimes be annulled. Some officiating body will legislate and something will become law and then a few years later it's repealed. That'll never happen with the Bible. You cannot annul it. You cannot set it aside and it'll never be abrogated. It cannot be broken. Isn't it fascinating then how often men like Voltaire and others have tried to annul it? They've tried to destroy it, but they've all failed. May I suggest to you that not only is that an interesting point, please notice how often statements like this are found in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. It is written... Now today, if you and I were to make a statement and use as authority some reference to, it is written, and it's based on some of the Jackson County Courthouse or the Putnam County Courthouse, that likely wouldn't carry a lot of weight, especially a few hundred years from now. But yet you and I today, living this many centuries, this side of when it was written, can still be so amazed by those three little words. It is written. May I suggest to you in regard to whatever that matter is, that settles it. Men may not like it, and men may choose, in fact, to try to justify their own behavior, but when the Bible says it's written, that settles it. I listed a whole host of both Old and New Testament points for you to consider there where that exact phrase occurs. One last set of thoughts. And the lesson will be yours. Jesus made a rather powerful statement in Matthew chapter 5. You'll notice in verses 17 and 18, there is a consideration. 
that is rather stupendous. It went something like this. There were those of his day who were offering some resistance to the things that the master was teaching. And Jesus, as he made reference to the word of God, he said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I came not to destroy but to fulfill. And as he elaborated on that, he said, Not one jot or tittle shall in any wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled. Have you ever considered what that means? Jot, tittle, those were some of the smallest strokes in the Hebrew language. In essence, Jesus was saying every letter of it, every letter of it, not just the overall message of the book, every single letter that the Holy Spirit had preserved and written is exactly what God wanted it to be. We aren't at liberty to change even a slight, the slightest letter of any one of these 66 books. Aren't you a bit impressed by that statement Jesus made? It truly is remarkable. To the very letter, that Bible is as it ought to be. In 2 Timothy 2.15 then, we are commanded to do this. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The verb that's used in that verse, and I've tried to identify a definition... It literally means to refer to a path that's straight, to cut a straight road, to cut a straight path. Figuratively, it's used then in light of analyzing the Word of God to hold strictly and straightly to it. Don't deviate left or right. Reminds us of what Joshua was told, wasn't it, in Joshua 1.8. Turn not to the right hand or the left. No wonder you and I strive to do that very thing. Tonight, I hope we've each been impressed with this opening lesson in the history of the Word of God. And so, as we close the lesson with that brief set of ideas, we're going to give thought then to some of the remaining matters in our series. We'll highlight some of those features in a bit more detail as we come to them in due course. Tonight, the Word of God is before us. It's been our study, and it shall be for the next couple of Sunday nights. Have you given your life and have I in open response to it? If you have, may you live faithfully till death, always using that Bible as your guide. But if you haven't, if you've become a Christian but have erred from that path and erred from that way, come back to your first love. We'd be honored to pray to God on your behalf. This very evening, as the Word of God has been our theme, remember the Scripture cannot be broken. If we could assist anybody in your response to the gospel's call of invitation, we'd be delighted, we'd be happy to assist and to help, and we would encourage you to come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.